0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair and this is rendering unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Leon Brenner, a research fellow at the University of Potsdam and lecturer at the International Psychoanalytic University Berlin. He is a training analyst, studying member of the APPI and a founder of Lucanian Affinities Berlin. His latest book on the subject of the psychoanalysis of autism is called The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, where he presents a novel account of autistic subjectivity from a Lacanian perspective. His book was just published a few weeks ago and is available as part of the Palgrave-Lacan series. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Please note, if you're listening to this episode on the Rendering Unconscious podcast stream, there is a video of this conversation available at YouTube. Just search for Trapart Film at YouTube. T R A P A R T film at YouTube or Rendering Unconscious podcast. If you enjoy Rendering Unconscious podcasts, please take a moment to go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating so that we can reach more listeners. Thank you. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious. Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry From Trapart Books, 2019 For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
1: So uh, maybe um, I'll start with at the beginning. Uh, A lot of people ask me, uh, why did I um, even start Uh, working on the subject of autism, which is a a subject that's uh, very close to my heart today. And it's a funny story, um, because I started being interested in autism after listening to a podcast. So here we are. Uh, But it was a different podcast, unfortunately, uh, called Radiolab, a very famous one. And uh, they have a very unique episode from 2014 called Juicervos, and it's a short episode about autism and specifically about a child called Owen an autistic child and it portrayed well radio lab portrays stories quite beautifully so they portrayed this story quite beautifully uh, but the gist of it uh, is that uh, Owen was uh, just um, seemed to his parents like um, like his brother just uh, regular normal child. And uh, at the age of two, he started, um, let's say, um, retreating into his own world up to a point where he was not speaking. And uh, it was uh, quite hard for the family, uh, which kept the spirits up. And they say that owen had like a very special interest uh as a young child and that was uh, disney movies and he was very into that and watching a lot of disney movies also sometimes uh repeating the words he hears there. so the parents tried to fill his his life with the things that he likes with disney characters dolls movies etc and the amazing point in the story and what sort of got me thinking oh this is uh, an interesting phenomenon to investigate is that at a certain age, uh, after Owen does not speak with his parents, does not communicate with them in any way, uh, his father comes to his bed and he takes one doll uh, of the parrot from uh, Aladdin, right? and he puts a little uh, blanket over his head and he speaks to Owen using the voice of the parrot. That's Gilbert Gottfried from the movies so very accentuated uh, voice, and he's sort of um, mimicking the voice. And he asks Owen, using this voice and using this doll, he asks him, uh, Owen, uh, well, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, Owen, how how are you feeling? And he answers. And, well, the father is quite shocked, and he continues uh, discussing or asking another question, and Owen answers. And that was completely shocking to the family. Uh, but for them, or how they describe it, uh, as an opening to his world, which ev- eventually enabled them to, uh, to build their relationship. Uh, today Owen is is uh, lingual, speaks, um, has acquaintances, friends, and, and a, a vocation. Uh, but it started there in that moment, like that moment of communication. And that was obviously a very uh, moving story. And I went to, uh, well, you always go to Google Scholar, right, to find the the paper. So I went and tried to see if this phenomenon can be explained. And I've mainly hit uh, like many uh, explanatory frameworks that weren't very, weren't going very deep. That's how I felt, at least. Yeah. And especially couldn't give uh, a convincing explanation for this specific phenomenon that sometimes is called um, uh, selective mutism. Um, uh, So um, being rooted in uh, Laconian uh, psychoanalysis, I was, oh, of course, Lacan has something to say about autism. There's no he has something to say about everything, right? Uh, So I went and looked around. And actually, he didn't have a lot to say about it. And he only addressed autism explicitly um, I would say like a few times, um, two, two very explicit times in, in 1975 in two conferences, uh, in, one in the United States. And um, basically, Lacombe was saying that uh, autistic subjects are subjects of language. right? So they still still are uh, speaking beings. And that was my first threat. So it was like, OK. Let's look at that from uh, that direction. And then I started doing the research and um, read some really interesting books uh, that unfortunately are only available in French, uh, but got really into the subject and eventually uh, started a five-year research which uh, culminated in the publication of my book uh, just a few weeks ago.
0: And this is so important because... Typically, at least in the U.S., um, and I think a lot of countries, autism is really treated treated really behaviorally and is seen as this kind of like neurological issue. And psychoanalysts, of course, think about it very differently. So I think it's really important that this book is coming out in English.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think this is This uh, has something to do uh, with the, uh, let's say, the normative aspect of my work, which was not only descriptive in a sense of providing uh, a, a, let's say, a viable, interesting framework uh, through which uh, scientific and clinical understanding of autism can be uh, furthered or uh, enlarged, but also this normative aspect, uh, which, again, you've raised the point, the behavioral therapy, right? Uh, what's what's extremely interesting about uh, about uh, well autism today, I think, is that there's so much uh, research done on the subject, and some of it is groundbreaking. Uh, of course, outside the field of psychoanalysis, there's extremely uh, important research done on the subject, uh, but there's a a huge disparity between the the way that scientists uh, address autism and the way that autistic people themselves address autism. It's, it's just, it's completely different. And you would say that it might be a matter of, of discourse or in the sense of using the specific words, it, it might be a, a problem of, of uh, you know, lack of access to scientific terminology, but I think it's uh, it's uh, paradigmatic, right? So scientists look at autism uh, as a sort of an object, uh, to be investigated, and well, mostly uh, this is a very prevalent uh, attitude. At a certain point, scientists aim to cure autism, to uh, enable people to rid themselves of their autism. Whereas, autistic people, uh, autistic advocates, uh, and you know, there's this huge movement uh, called the neurodiversity movement has been formed by autistic people and is is, well, uh, has many uh, autistic subjects uh, participating in it today. And the idea that this movement progresses and a lot of autistic people progress in their books, uh, which I might recommend on some, and we can write some in the in the info, uh, is that autism is part of who they are. It's uh, it's a, a pervasive phenomenon that, colors every different aspect of one's existence. And in this sense, by wanting to cure someone of their autism, in a way it is wanting to cure someone of themselves, right? Losing something which is essential, a singular to their subjectivity. And I think between these two uh, approaches to autism, there's a huge, huge disparity, uh, which I think psychoanalysis in a way is able to um, surpass or even mend,
0: mm-hmm. We'll say more about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so much to say. Um, yeah, um, okay, so how do I, how do I uh, approach, how do I approach autism in, in the book? Um, well, I approach it as a uh, mode of being. You now this is the basic uh, assumption. It's a, it's a way, a, a practice of existence. It's one way to, to exist in the world, right? Uh, in psychoanalysis, at least uh, the school that I uh, belong to, um, there is no um, normal, non-pathological uh, existence. There's only uh, ways we can sort of deal or exist or have a relationship with a reality. And, um, well, Freud uh, described uh, three, I think this this might be uh, an accurate assumption, that he described three different mental structures, sort of three different ways uh, to exist. Uh, these are uh, neurosis, uh, perversion, and psychosis. And I think, uh, Jacques Lacan, well I didn't mention this but obviously I'm well endowed in the uh, uh, Laconian school and my, my book is strictly L- Lacanian in this sense. Uh, Jacques Lacan uh, uh, adopted that from Freud and for Jacques Lacan these are three subjective structures. Now what is I think what is unique about psychoanalysis and what uh, distinguishes it from The field of philosophy quite uh, clearly is the fact that a philosophy um, aims to uh, maybe uncover or construct a a truth which is universal and uh, well uh, beyond time. In a sense, the uh, the philosophy of uh, of Plato is. relevant for us today, as long as it had to do with this kind of philosophical truth. Whereas psychoanalysis is a practice that is based on people coming to the clinic. And in this sense, people um, are um, take uh, part in the social and society. And society has a, a insepar- is inseparate from subjectivity because society changes. Uh, through history, we, only see, we also see that subjectivity changes, right? So in this sense, when we talk about psychoanalytic uh, truisms or let's say structures, uh, we, are, we necessarily have to assume that these structures uh, change uh, with society. So while in the time of Freud, that was more than 100 years ago, Uh, we might assume that the uh, sum of humanity available to Freud at least uh, could be, um, let's say, uh, assessed in terms of these three subjective structures, Um, there uh, there um, uh, there is no reason for there today not to be more. And let's say this is my basic assumption, and what I strive to sort of demonstrate in in my book, uh, uh, the fact that autism, in fact, it should be viewed as a fourth singular subjective structure in line with the uh, common three common subjective structures that Freud and Lacan uh, talk about. Um, now this is uh, this is um, crucial also from within the field of psychoanalysis because since it's uh, let's say uh, birth, if, if one can say that, uh, autism was considered to be a form of psychosis right So uh, from very early um, case studies that we see uh, in psychoanalytic literature, we see that these cases that today in hindsight, we uh, describe as cases of autism, you know, uh, at the time of their uh, deliberation, I mean the turn of the, 20th, of the 19th century, the uh, beginning of the 20th century, uh, they were described as cases of childhood psychosis. Right? And well, it's, it's not so far-fetched to, uh, view autism in this way because the symptoms the way that symptoms manifest in autism sometimes th- this these manifestations uh sometimes can be conflated with with those that we see in psychosis there's something that is quite similar uh, in the sense of um, we see some uh, alterations in the use of language uh, repetitive behaviors um, let's say um, what uh, um what Kanner called uh, aloneness, a tendency for um, closing yourself from the outside world. This, of, of course, reminds us of, of, of Freud's uh, notion of the end of the world and ca- the cataclysm of the world in, in psychosis. So uh, psychiatrists and psychoanalysts at, uh, at that time were, were very much confusing the two. Now, this is not, this sort of conflation has not so much dissipated, even from within the uh, Lacanian field, uh, where uh, today a lot of people still argue that autism is in fact a form of psychosis. Uh, Sort of saying that, uh, uh, well, uh, what Lacan argues is the uh, structural cause of psychosis, the foreclosure of the name of the father is still very valid for autism. And in this sense, I've heard some interesting theories, which I respectfully disagree with, but uh, interesting theories which uh, uh, situate autism on these different poles of psychosis, if you can call them, uh, paranoia, schizophrenia, melancholia, and, and autism in this sense. But in this book, I try to very much uh, show and demonstrate that this, this sort of assumption uh, has to be in a way false, and that by assuming that autism is a singular subjective structure, we gain, uh, we gain a lot. It's an extremely fruitful hypothesis uh, that opens up some, a lot of place for theorization and also for clinical practice as well.
0: That's wonderful. I'm so excited. I have your book ordered, but I don't have it oh. in my hands yet, um, but I'm so excited to read it. It sounds really interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. I really I'm really glad that there's a move towards um, in psychoanalysis of course but it seems in the greater culture as well um, towards understanding that people have different ways of being in the world (laughs) we need to move away from this idea that uh, scientists have had for so long that there's a norm or a healthy way of being and then there's all these deviations from the norm because really there's just an infinite myriad of ways of being in the world and right. I, we we need to stop with that
1: right yes the deviation in fact if if we will use this word is is a way of existing is the way of existing right it's uh it is it is a question of of the of one's suffering uh, which brings uh, someone to the clinic, not the fact of being perverse or psychotic or neurotic. It's the question, do you suffer as a, a neurotic? And then you come to the clinic and, and try to, to work through through this, this suffering. And the idea is not to cure one of his or her neurosis or psychosis or perversion or autism, but to find a way to exist and to be, um, well, in best of cases, enthusiastic about, about life. In this way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. should we get really deep into uh, Lacanian terminology or uh, hey. yeah? yeah? <laughs> um, okay, uh, well, again, the, the book is um, quite um, specialized in the middle, it has uh, two chapters that really meticulously go through some uh, suggestions that I give for viewing uh, uh, autism in through Lacanian terms. Whereas the seventh chapter of the book, I think is the one that is most, um, let's say open uh, for people that are even are not so much interested in, in Lacan. And in this chapter, I also provide uh, what I call the uh, autistic linguistic spectrum. Uh, hypothesis so but we'll get we'll get to that yeah uh, but maybe we can start with this more uh, lacanian approach to subjectivity and and see how we can also understand uh, autism in this way wonderful um, so very basically i'll try today not to really go into jargon and, and stuff like that but i'll try really hard uh, but uh, let's say according to lacan very uh, Basically, uh, one's existence is, is based or rooted in a certain, uh, let's say, um, intersection or interrelationship between the body and language, right? Between a certain, a, a living, a vivacity, uh, what in French is called uh, vivant, and, uh, and language, right? So on the one hand, it is uh, a structural theory, because we're talking about language, linguistic structures, linguistic mechanisms. Uh, Lacan talks about metonymy, metaphor. Um, uh, Later on, we uh, discuss uh, mechanisms such as repression and foreclosure as linguistic mechanisms. So we have that aspect. Uh, but on the other hand, there's always an aspect which uh, exceeds the, the form, uh, the structural form. And in this sense, a lot of people call Lacan a post-structuralist. But but w- w- in, in saying so, what, what we argue is that we always have to remember there is the question of the body, there is the question of the drive of libido, right, or jouissance, right, in, in Lacan. So... Basically speaking, um, and this is something a lot of people uh, repeat because it's a nice uh, metaphor. Uh, We have a baby coming to the world and the human baby is not very uh, sophisticated. Uh, I always tell this story that uh, I was once in a um, farmhouse in Canada. And uh, I was staying in this, uh, it was a very strange experience, it was a farmhouse full of postdoctoral researchers that investigate dairy <laughs> but i stayed there just uh, just a couple of nights and uh, one night at 4 a.m. they woke uh, they woke me up and they said you have to come uh, one of the cows is giving birth and we went in the middle of the night to see the cow giving birth it was quite a magical moment and i was i was quite surprised to see the uh, the calf the little <laughs> the, the the little cow baby and just coming out and immediately star gets on his feet and starts to walk around, you know, walk around, look around, smell things. And that was, oh, this, this little cow is ready for the world in a way. But human babies are not so much like that uh, in a way. Human babies are not ready for the world. Right? And the thing is that in the womb, and this is very hypothetical, uh, there's a certain relationship of, of satisfaction between the child and the mother. Uh, let's say, the child has these needs, instinctual needs, and they're somewhat answered. Of course, this is extremely hypothetical because also in the womb, there's some some things that are not so comfortable for the baby as well. Uh, But what what, uh, we say about this whole uh, story is that the baby comes out and then the baby has needs, uh, but they're not satisfied. They're not answered immediately. And this is a problem. And at that point, uh, in order for the caretaker to know that, let's say, the baby is hungry, baby is sleepy, baby wants a hug, etc., the baby has to address the caretaker, sort of communicate in a way. And in order to do that, uh, the baby has to take on himself or herself in this sense, assume uh, this language, this, this, let's say, this uh, locus from which his needs can be articulated and then answered, right? At a very early age, this is the baby's cry and the baby cries and the caretaker knows, oh, okay, baby's hungry, I can feed him. And this is a great uh, great start, right, for subjectivity uh, in Lacombe, right? Now, what we say about uh, autism, and here I owe a lot to um, a really a wonderful uh, professor and wonderful Lacanian writer uh, from France uh, called uh, Jean-Claude Maleval, which also wrote the foreword to my book, was kind enough to, to write the foreword, and he develops an extremely interesting theory about this moment in autism. So what what Maleval argues, and I develop in the book, is that this moment where one has to take on himself language in order to uh, address a need to the other is an extremely traumatic one. It is a moment where something of the body has to be, in a way, uh, cut out and invested in a field which is outside of, of oneself, a linguistic field, so whereas again, I'll try to be a bit more um, metaphorical in order to to express my point here is that um, where a need is, is something that rises up of the whole of the body uh, by expressing it in a uh, articulated form we necessarily reduce or lose some aspect of its liveliness. Something of the the vivacity of this uh, whole complete vivacity is lost and articulated in in a demarcated way. Um, A good example uh, I sometimes give is you know, you ask somebody, uh, it's, it's a good example, because love is always a good example. So you ask somebody, uh, why do you love this person? And this, and he says, well, uh, she's uh, extremely uh, smart. And then you say, well, you know, there are smarter people in the world. So if that was the case, you probably love a smarter person You just go and find a smarter person. There's something specific about this person is say, Oh, yes, she's smart, but also um, extremely um, gleeful, etc. etc. We can go on and on, but there's always a, a thing that language is unable to articulate in this way. Uh, love, in a way, exceeds, exceeds it, it, its capacity, hopefully, uh, at least uh, to my view. I know I have uh, Lacanian colleagues that disagree. Uh, so, in a way, uh, expressing this uh, vivacity, this initial. Vivacity in language necessarily entails a loss, a loss of something of the living body, some some aspect of the living body. Now, in Lacan, uh, Lacan takes uh, the Freudian notion of the drive, trieb in German, not to be confused with instinct. And he sort of reduces the list, uh, Freud had a longer list, and he says, well, there's the oral drive, the anal drive, and Lacan also a, adds the um, invocatory drive, so this means uh, whatever enters through here, and the scopic drive, the one uh, with the, that, well, the gaze. And what Maleval argues is that what we see in autism is in fact a uh let's say a reaction to this uh necessary loss on the level of the invocatory drive so it's a question of the voice and uh, lacan writes a lot about the voice also uh, if someone is interested uh, there's uh, some interesting articles and books on it by La on um, the, the voice in, in Lacombe. And the voice and the invocatory drive have a very crucial role in, in uh, constituting a relationship between the subject and language. Right. so so it's it sort of has a, a very initiatory role in in this relationship, and what Maleval argues is that instead of let's say um, succumbing to to this uh, loss, instead of uh, investing this liveliness, this vivacity in Uh, the other of language in terms of the voice, uh, the autistic subject chooses to uh, refuse this. There is a certain retention of the voice at that very initiatory level. Now, without uh, being libidinally invested uh, in language in this way, um, we see that autistic subjects have a, some let 's say uh, different uh, challenges or hardships, even uh, when they have to use language in order to construct uh, their reality right? so what what we see is this initial retention of the voice, which is the structural cause let 's say of autism, and then uh, what we can call the symptomatic manifestation right or uh, however, uh, the autistic universe or autistic reality uh, unravels for the subject. And this is a very, di- a very different way uh, than, let's say, neurotic uh, subjects are used to. And this is why a lot of clinicians uh, engaging uh, therapy with autistic uh, people uh, oftentimes uh, argue that it is so difficult to communicate and in a way, and this is something that uh, Lacan refers to in his 1975 lecture, he's in fact asked by one of the clinicians in the audience uh, if if he thinks that autistic uh, individuals even listen. Right? And what Lacan says is that, well, the fact that uh, they do not uh, listen to you when you try to care for them in the way that you try to care for them does not mean that they do not speak and they do not listen they do not use language right and eventually the 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 goal of my book is to uh, emphasize this point and to open up a possibility for a dialogue with autism uh, which is not done in this in a very let's say this is what brings me back to behavioral therapy in a way that it, that sort of tries to uh, disregard language and its and its um, and let's say it's 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 fu- the fruitfulness of of language in in any form of of therapy, and in a way you, you addressing autistic individuals as people that need to learn something, learn how to behave, rather than learn. How to find their unique singular way into language and through that into the social bond
0: yeah that's beautiful it's beautifully put um when i was in graduate school getting my side one of my jobs that i had was as a, a like a behavioral therapist or personal care assistant um, okay. for an autistic boy and um I would go to his house like four days a week in the afternoons or like all day on Saturday and take care of him and you know that that included very behavioral things like helping him eat and go to the Mm. bathroom and things like Mm. that um Mm. but I definitely you know I just tried to meet him where he was at I never tried to get him to do anything he didn't want to do he didn't really have any uh, overt language um, but you know I could tell when he didn't want to do something I could tell when he wanted to go watch a movie he loved Disney as well mm-hmm. and especially mm-hmm. Pinocchio and Dumbos were his favorite movies mm-hmm. and um, and yeah and I just like yeah respected him and his subjectivity and tried to work work with him instead of like forcing him to do anything and then the people that ended up like taking the job over after I left was a different company, like his insurance changed and, and they had to go with a different company. And I kind of helped in that transition to try to tell them like where he was at and that sort of thing. And they were like very behavioral therapists that were mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. psychoanalytically minded at all. And they would like physically force him to do things and hold him down when he wanted to leave the room. And it was so horrendous to see. It was just, absolutely horrible
1: yes absolutely yeah i mean if there's if there's one point, uh, and again i i wrote this book uh, uh aimed at people with an interest in psychoanalysis but again the, the the chapter where i discuss uh the autistic linguistic spectrum is a chapter i wrote with the hopes that maybe people that are also absolutely outside of the discourse can also um gain some, some new insights or perspective. And basically speaking, the point that, that is so crucial to understand is that every, uh, let's say, um, all work done with autistic uh, people has to be based on the understanding that a, uh, a solution uh, has to be uh, completely uh, inventive and unique. And this is something that uh, behavioral... Uh, Therapy uh, tends to neglect uh, the fact that it offers a sort of a universal solution. Whereas autism, I think, is one of the uh, exemplary cases where uh, it is only the singular and unique solution that is invented by the subject himself that can lead to some form of lasting progress uh, that doesn't come at the price of one's uh, subjectivity itself. In a way, uh, uh, conditioning is, is a way of reducing the, uh, the role of the subject in one's reality. Right, it, it reduces reality to a set of, of, of behaviors, of, uh, of uh, 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 stimulus and reactions. Uh, so definitely what I I, I hope uh, to get out there is is a certain approach that is very tenfold to these unique uh, manifestations that we see in autism. And, you know, it can be uh, this love for Disney, which is an excellent, uh, let's say, source for work, as we see in the case of of Owen that is has presented this uh, podcast, but you know it can also be a leaf or a stick or a washing machine. Yeah. All of these could be um, let's say um, points uh, of insertion into language. Right. And, and this is the goal, I think, in, in, autism, in treating autism in general is assisting the subject to enter into a certain relationship with language that can be useful in, first of all, uh, let's say, uh, mediating the, uh, the world and these uh, what is sometimes experienced as unbearable intrusions of excitation of resonance. Uh, up to a point where someone can take on a certain interest and learn it and study it and become an expert in it and gain a unique kind of pleasure using this specific interest. And then to a point where someone's interest can be also articulated in terms which are, um, let's say, uh, open to the social world. And make someone an active member of society, and and find a place to the world in the world, find a place uh, to be inscribed as someone in the world, right? Uh, but yes, I think I think one one very interesting uh, notion that I did uh, adopt from uh, some uh, very important, I think, uh, Lacanian scholars. Uh, is the fact that in autism, we argue uh, that there is no other in the sense of the big other, Now, this is a a quote from uh, a a really interesting uh, couple called uh, Rosine and Robert Lefort, and they um, are considered to be the pioneers of uh, autism research in the Lacanian field. They have one book in English. Uh, I think it's uh, right right behind me, the, the Birth of the Other. The rest of their books are in French. Uh, but they really started this whole, um, they based this hypothesis that in autism, there is no big other. Right? Now, this is something that maybe is important to, to clarify because. In psychosis, uh, according to Lacan, uh, we also see that there is a foreclosure uh, in the symbolic. Lacan calls this the foreclosure of the signifier of the name of the father. Uh, Whoever knows uh, something about that, that's wonderful. You can actually read about it first in Lacan seminar uh, three. Uh, But what this means in a way is that language operates differently in psychosis. And uh, that this is due to a certain uh, erasure or total erasure on the level of of the symbolic order or the big other, what Lacan calls the big other. Now, what is important about psychosis, and Lacan stresses that quite clearly, is that while there is a hole in the big other, in the place where the signifier of the name of the father was, uh, there is still an other the psychotic right so this is something that has to be uh, emphasized whereas in autism uh, what we see in a sense is a complete uh, foreclosure of the field of the other itself now what does this mean and not in, in terms which are a bit more let's let's get a bit more uh, linguistic or maybe scientific and a bit less uh, metaphorical um, what this means, in fact, is that for psychosis, um, what is uh, erased or foreclosed is a specific kind of signifier which is in charge of some organizing capacities that the symbolic order has on the body, on reality, etc. Okay. But what we see in uh, autism is that autistic subjects, in fact, have no access to the domain of the signifier. Now, this might bring some people to say, oh, well, this means they are out of language. But what Lacan only started to say by saying that autistic subjects are, in fact, quite verbose, that's, that's a quote from Lacan, is that not having access to the domain of signifiers doesn't mean that you are not a subject of language. And this is something that I also develop uh, in the book, this idea, which uh, is called the autistic recourse to the sign. Right? And here, we're getting a little more, um, let's say, um, linguistic and a bit more specialized in distinguishing between what is a signifier and what is a sign. I'll try to explain this uh, basically, and whoever is interested, of course, can can read about it in my book, Uh, but this is based mostly on uh, Ferdinand de Saussure's uh, theory and and Jakobson's theory. Uh, In in modern linguistics and the field of semiotics, when we talk about uh, language and how meaning is created, uh, we don't view it so much in terms of a word that refers to something in the world. So let's say the word cat means a cat in the world. So this is not how modern linguistic views language. Uh, Modern linguistic views language as, well, I'm saying modern, but I'm talking about mid-20th century. Uh, But this type of linguistics, the semiotics, uh, argues that a signifier is by itself empty. It it doesn't refer to anything. Uh, A signifier, according to De Saussure, is in fact a sound image. It's a little sound. A, E, U. And the way that meaning is created is when different signifiers are sort of interposed and, in a sense, posed one against the other. You know, and we have i-a-u-u, or like k a t. That's a very simple word, cat. So we have these signifiers that are interposed, these sound images. And when they are interposed in a specific way, one next to the other, a specific time in history would say that the word cat means this. So this is how signification happens. Signifier refers to other signifiers and through their interrelationship, a meaning can be established. Now a sign, and this is sort of a, a take that Lacan makes on it. It's interesting because he he, he talks a lot about uh, uh, Robinson Crusoe when he does that in several seminars, which is a, a really good book, but he uses this to emphasize the nature of the sign. A sign is is like a word that has one reference. Okay, so for instance, um, uh, if fire would be a sign, sorry, smoke would be a sign of fire, right? Or and again, this is uh, controversial. So just for the sake of the example, um, the uh, sign of the uh, man and, and this sign of the woman on the uh, public toilet means this is men's restroom or, or women's restroom. There's one meaning for each sign. Uh, and this is how a sign functions. Now, Lacan argues that, well, we do have access to this domain of the sign when we use language, but that neurotic, perverse, and psychotic subjects all are disposed to using signifiers when constructing their sense of reality when when being in the world this is how we make meaning you know the world opens up to us through its meanings this is uh, well we shouldn't say this but it's a bit existential solistic or uh, phenomenological in the sense of heideggerian sense of things present themselves through their usefulness through their meaning and in a way the world is a world of meaning And this meaning unravels through the interplay of signifiers and the way that we uh, utilize signifiers in this, in in the unraveling of of reality and the understanding of the world. Now, what we see in autism, this is uh, sort of one, one of my hypotheses, is that in autism, because of the retention of the voice, because of this initiatory refusal on the level of language, There is no access to the big other in terms of the locus of signifiers. But autistic subjects do have access to signs. And through the use of signs, they can compose an intricate, complex system uh, of knowledge that can enable them to live a very satisfying life, if they choose. Uh, it It would be a different reality. It would be a different way uh, in which uh, things unravel and present themselves. Meaning would be constructed in a different way, but it will be constructed. Now, in my uh, theory of uh, this uh, autistic linguistic spectrum, I propose a a certain, um, let's say, progression uh, between uh, several levels of implementation of the sign uh, in one's uh, relationship with reality. Right? Uh, starting from a, a point where, uh, you know, this is a point which is again a hypothetical point which precedes language altogether, where there is no use of language in creating even a border from, from the world, in creating a me and the world. so excitation constantly invades the body, and this we see this in autism in a lot of cases, to a point where the sign is used in dealing with resource, in demarcating it, in creating a certain border, right? a border that enables one to have some moments of, let's say moments of peace, moments of, of existence, which is not constantly in the threat of destruction or self-destruction, then using the sign, gaining a certain interest in language, seeing that signs are in fact things that one can play with and use in, in exploration. And this is, I think, one of the... Uh, one, one excellent uh, example uh, can be found um, in, with one, one uh, famous autism advocate. Again, I'll, I'll add this in the links. And she has an excellent uh, video on YouTube. Unfortunately, she uh, passed away uh, last year, uh, where she demonstrates her unique way of using language in a tactile way in her tactile exploration of the world. So this level is a certain fascination with language, using it in order to, to gain a certain satisfaction, which is personal to a point where language is used to explore and create knowledge create a knowledge about a specific field a specific field of specialization and then to a point where language is in fact not so much uh, used in adjacent, uh, using auxiliary objects uh, in its incorporation, you know, these things that have to be in the environment, that have, have to do with these tactile sensations, but having a language of your own. And this is what, uh, uh, based on Maleval, I call the synthetic other. So this is not the big other as we know it, as the locus of the signifier, but a synthetic other, uh, which is composed of signs. And after this, well, the sky is the limit. There's a terrific documentary uh, from the Lacanian field called A Ciel Ouvert," the like an open sky, and this is what Lacan says about the psychotic unconscious. It's like an open sky, but I think that we can also use it here in autism in the sense that the synthetic other has is, is like an open sky. It can be used for a variety, endless variety of of of. Uh, of goals up to a point where in this spectrum we can call it the transparent pole of the spectrum where we see people that are not even deemed as autistic and sometimes are diagnosed at the age of 30 or 40 and sort of understand oh yes now i understand uh, why i was acting this way but in a way we don't really they even don't really notice uh, that their use of language is different and what i suggest is that Each point on this spectrum, and I provide four different points, dictates a different clinic. And the work with autistic subjects on the level where a certain boundary has to be created with the body, a certain body image has to be created, is one clinic and clinicians should be ready to operate in certain ways with a certain method when they work with autistic subjects right on uh, on this point. And this work should progress them to the next one where language is used for the sake of a certain satisfaction and curiosity and pleasure. And this should entail a different clinic. Again, a clinic that is rich with objects, that is rich with with an environment that, that can enable this sort of satisfaction. Then there's the level of being interested in a specific field, gaining knowledge, becoming an expert. This is a different clinic. Right? And then the, the fourth clinic, and this is the one that we can in a way associate with what we see today uh, with, with practitioners working with Asperger syndrome uh, patients, is a clinic of just asking yourselves these questions, what do I want from my life, uh, how can I achieve my goals, where can I how, how can I uh, if I want a job, how how will I go and, 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 and do that, et cetera, etc? Cetera. Uh, so you see there's four different clinical trajectories that are based on four different levels of linguistic functionality. And this is sort of what I try to progress in the uh, seventh chapter of the book, and I hope somehow. Or will have some effect on practitioners that also work outside of the Lacanian school. Uh, maybe last thing I'd like to mention is um, that while while my work was definitely based on on the work of clinicians, of psychoanalysts, uh, on case studies, uh, on uh, it's it's well on on work that is conceptual, etc. I think the most important aspect of, of these, uh, let's say last five years that I've been conducting this research was my exposure to uh, autistic subject literature, to autistic literature, to autistic writing. Uh, I, I think that's, that this kind of, of creativity is the one that impacted me the most. And something that I think is, is crucial for any, anyone that's, uh, that, that's interested in autism or interested in conducting research or interested in, in working with autistic subjects is to go and read these books and listen to these autistic subjects that find it so important to get out uh, to the world uh, their idea about themselves. And one thing that is uh, very much uh, progressed uh, by by these uh, really inspiring figures, and among them I can definitely uh, mention Temple Grandin and Donna Williams, uh, two excellent writers that 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 inspired me, is that we have to remember that for autistic subjects, autism is not a thing that can be, let's say, excised or cut out. It is, it is who a person is. And it's a matter of being autistic and not a matter of having uh, autism. And I think this, at least this basic uh, axiom or hypothesis is, is the one that's the most crucial in when starting and engaging with this uh, field and subject uh, in general
0: yeah. yeah and I think it's a really good point that you know everyone can learn from different points of view and like here in Sweden of course Greta Thunberg she credits her activism and her ability to speak out um because she has autism or Asperger's because she doesn't care so much about these social cues that she's supposed to abide by she sees something very clearly and she speaks out about it and she also talks about how before she started speaking out she became very depressed and she wasn't speaking and she got very closed off because she was so upset about the state of the world and how no one was taking care of it or addressing the climate crisis and then ever since she started finding her voice and speaking about it she's gotten you know so much energy and of course a lot of energy has gotten behind her to address these issues so instead of thinking that somebody has something wrong with them that needs to be changed how about just listen to people and what they say about themselves and their point of view and learn from it
1: exactly exactly and th- the name of of my book is the autistic subject on the threshold of language and this is exactly where a, where a dialogue uh, with with autistic uh, people an autistic subject has to be uh, initiated exactly there and from there um, well as, as you've just described uh, we're, we're looking at subjects that are inspirational and can definitely cha- change the world yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Leon Brenner. For more, please follow him on social media and check out his new book, The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, available as part of the Palgrave Lacan series. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, that's trapart.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Dot com, forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website sinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.